minister to us through it, uh, and you bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, welcome to New Springs again. My name is Gavin. I'm the pastor here. Always glad to be uh, worshiping alongside of you guys, our great God who does amazing stuff like what we just read. Uh, if it's your first or second time here, there's a, a connect card inside of the bulletin that you should have received. And uh, there's also a little QR code there that you can scan because we're very fancy and high tech, uh, as you can see by our double podium here, uh, which you can't see. It's taped with blue, blue tape to hold it together. Uh, but you can connect with us through that prayer requests, uh, questions you may have, um, and we'd love to love to hear from you. So this morning we're looking at Exodus. You just heard that read wonderfully uh, by Anna. Uh, and this is one of the most popular stories that there is in the Bible. Um, without ever coming to church, you probably have some familiarity with this story. Maybe you've seen Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments. Uh, I personally haven't. Uh, four hours of a 1950s movie is just not something I'm willing to do. Um, the Prince of Egypt, maybe you saw that, uh, one of the best soundtracks there is, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, it's a good, mo a good movie, good songs. Or maybe you've seen Christian Bale's uh, Gods, uh, or Exodus, Gods and Kings, uh, which is the most horrible rendition I've ever seen, uh, trying to make it about sibling rivalry and special effects, not great. But in any case, you've heard about Moses being called by God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, through the Red Sea with the waters parted. And so with that popularity of the story, I think, uh, or rather I know what's often missed is what the story's really about. See, we're led to believe that the protagonist is, is Moses, and this is the person that we're to pay attention to, and we're to have courage like him and strength like him and faith like him. But when I read the story, and hopefully when we read the story, it doesn't seem that Moses is the central character. Rather, it's God. And so what I want to do is two things this morning. Demonstrate how the Exodus fits into the grand narrative of the Bible that we've been looking at together over the last few weeks. And secondly, I want to demonstrate what the overall significance of the Exodus is. We want to, we want to leave here understanding this isn't a cool story to just tell people about how God's able to separate the waters. He created everything. Of course he can do that. So... What is the meaning for us? And so the way we're going to do that uh, is look at this story threefold, the history of redemption, uh, the God of redemption, and then the goal of redemption. So let's start with the history of redemption. And as is our custom with this series, uh, we're looking at large chunks of passages. So we're not going to get into like the, the, the real nitty gritty details of each verse, but hopefully see the bigger picture overall. Uh, last week, we looked at how God called Abraham out of the land that he was comfortable with. So he says, Abram, I want you to leave your father's house, your country, your kindred, and you're going to go to a land that I will show you, just kind of following in blind faith. And God promises Abram offspring that would multiply like the stars in the sky. And if you remember, the issue there is Abraham was already 75 years old and his wife was barren when he received this promise. We learn from Romans chapter 4 that the offspring that God was speaking about is actually anyone who believes in Jesus Christ with the same faith that Moses had, or Abraham had. And so to translate that for us, if you believe in and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have the faith that Abraham did, you are part of that offspring that God promised to him. 
But we also learn that God promised Abraham to make him into a great nation, an actual physical nation that would be represented here on the earth. And so we saw as the story progressed, Abraham gave birth to his miraculous son, Isaac. Isaac then gave birth to Jacob and Esau. The promises continued through Jacob. And if you were able to read throughout the week and follow along with us, you saw that God reestablishes his promise with, with, with each passing generation. Isaac's born, and God says to Isaac, I'm going to make you fruitful and multiply you and increase greatly. He says to Jacob, the same thing, I'm going to make you fruitful, multiply you, give you this blessed land. And he continues to make that promise. And the book of Genesis ends with Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. So that's now a great-grandson of Abraham. And the same thing continues. I'm going to promise to multiply you and increase and, and make you fruitful and give you this land. And when the story of Joseph ends, it ends with him as the prime minister of Egypt. So this young Hebrew boy who had been cast off by his brothers elevates to the status of the prime minister, a very high position in the most powerful nation in the world at that time, and he dies there in Egypt. And we read these words in Exodus chapter 1 as the story of Moses begins. It says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers in all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. We've heard that before. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Translation, God's promises are coming true. We went from one really old man with a barren wife to a nation that's increasing greatly in the land of Egypt. I think it's worth pausing for a moment just to admire what it is that God can do. Again, he makes a promise to a 75-year-old man uh, and, and, his, and his barren wife that they're going to have a kid. You imagine Abram's mind at that time. He can't possibly conceptualize a way that that, that that works out. And sometimes that happens in our life where we're looking at the situation in front of us, and you can't think of any way that that's going to end positively. Of all the possible outcomes that you can conceptualize on your own, none of them work out. And yet God is able and willing to step into that and do the impossible. Uh, maybe it's a family member that you believe is too far gone and, uh, and there's no hope. I'm sure all of us have been there at some point. Trust in God. You never know what it is that God wants to do or can do. Maybe you feel like you personally, like life is just piling on top of you. Bad situation after bad situation. And again, you're using your rationale and you're thinking, I, I don't think there's any way out of this. There's just no way that this outcome turns out positive. Remember, God gave a hundred-year-old man a little boy. Possible. Always possible through God. God promises that in Isaiah 55 that anytime his word goes out, it never returns to him void. And so here's a promise that we can all bank on. If I want to be faithful like Abram and I want to go out and tell of God's greatness to my friends, that word goes out, it's not returning void. I can trust in the Lord that results will come. Just by coming here this morning, being in church, hearing the word read, listening to it preached, and worshiping God through song, you're receiving God's word, which means the power and the wisdom of the Lord is entering into your mind and into your heart, and that can accomplish anything in your life. Have that kind of trust and faith in God. But we read really quickly after we see that Israel is increased and multiplied greatly in Egypt that a new king rises up. And this new king doesn't know Joseph, doesn't care about his family or any of his traditions. 
and he looks at it completely economically and says, I like free labor, and so I'm going to take all of these people, I'm going to enslave them and make them work for me for free to increase our economy. He becomes a harsh taskmaster. He doubles the work of the Israelites. You see stories where the Israelites are being beaten severely for not doing the work well. And then this is where the hero of the story enters. See, we're reading Exodus 1 and Exodus 2, and all of this negativity is building. The Israelites are getting beaten. And then I think of uh, that scene in the Born Ultimatum. You got Julia Stiles' character, and you got this bad guy dashes after her, and then all of a sudden Jason Bourne comes flying in through the window and beats down the bad guy with a textbook. Or maybe you saw the Avengers recently, and you saw that scene where uh, Doctor Strange makes the little orange circle thing, and all the heroes show up, and you just at the at the pit of your stomach, you're like, "Yes, the hero's here." This story's much better than those, right? This is the moment where God steps into Israel's history, where things are looking bleak and bad. They're making bricks without straw. They're getting beaten by these Egyptian taskmasters. And then we read at the end of Exodus chapter 2 that God hears the cries of his people, and he remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And let's see what he's going to do about it. So what God does, he raises up Moses, an 80-year-old fugitive shepherd, and he sends him to set the people free. And in Exodus chapter 3, we read Moses asking the name of this God. He says, before I go before Pharaoh to tell him to let your people, your Israelites, go, who should I tell him sent me with this message? And this is what it says in Exodus 3 uh, verse 14. I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. See, what Moses is about to find out is what we need to know. We worship a God who delivers his people out of slavery and into freedom so that we might know God. We worship a God who delivers his people out of slavery and into freedom for the purpose of knowing this God better. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, Second point here, the God of redemption. So what is it that we need to know about this God in this story? God reveals at least four things as he enters into Moses' life and enters into the life of the Israelites. First thing we see, God is faithful. God is faithful. Over and over and over again, we read that he hears the cries of, of his people, and he's going to do something about it. How often is it that we think that God doesn't hear us, right? You're praying about something. You're not seeing an answer. You're not feeling anything in that moment. It just feels like empty words that are hitting the ceiling and and not doing much of anything. Imagine being a slave for years, and you're getting beaten by these taskmasters, and you're like, some promise God made to Abraham and Isaac. I don't see it coming true now. But we read Exodus 2.24. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Exodus 3, verses 7 and 8, this is in the burning bush. God says to Moses, surely I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. Seen, heard, know, and I have come down to deliver them out of the land into a good and broad land. Exodus 3, 16 and 17, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. God hears the cries of his people, 
and he wants to do something about it. This isn't an impersonal God that we serve. This isn't the, the old example of God being the, uh, the, the clock maker and he just creates the world, lets it run like a clock with, with natural laws, and then steps back and allows us to figure it out ourselves. That's not our God. Our God is deeply personal, listening to the deep cries of your heart, and wants to enter in and enact. One of the most comforting truths is the fact that God, as big as he is, deeply cares about you. Trust that whatever is important to you, if you're a believer in Christ, you're a part of the family of God, whatever is important to you is important to your God as well. And so the first thing we learn about him in this story is he's faithful. He's faithful to the promises that he made to Moses. He's faithful to the promises he made to Abraham. He's faithful to the promises he's making to the entirety of Israel. Why wouldn't he be faithful to the promises he's made to you? Second thing we learn, God is sovereign. Sovereign means that he's in control. Before sending Moses, God lays out the entire plan of exactly what's going to happen. You read Exodus chapters 3 and 4, God says, here's how it's going to go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. He's a little bit stubborn. He's not going to listen to you. And then I'm going to drive the Israelites out with a mighty hand. He tells Moses the game plan before the game even starts. He knew that sending Moses would not be enough to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. And so what we're, we're tempted to do is we look at this story and we think, all right, God's plan, he's just going to send Moses, he's going to make him turn a stick into a snake, Pharaoh's going to be convinced, let the people go, and happy ending. But it didn't work out that way, and so God went to plan B, turn the water into blood, that didn't work. Plan C, let's do frogs. Uh, plan D, I'm starting to lose track of the letters, but like we're going plan after plan after plan after plan, that wasn't God's aim at all. From the beginning, he took a man whose heart was hardened, and he said, and he allowed him to stay that way for the purpose of displaying his glory. Think about that. From the beginning, God took a man who was stubborn, whose heart was hardened toward him, and allowed him to stay that way so that he could display his glory through him. There's something scary in there. You should be really fearful about a heart that's hardened toward God. You don't care about Christ, you don't care about the Bible, you don't care about his word, you might be in a spot where you're not so far from God just simply letting you do that, keep your heart hardened, keep your heart hardened toward him, and he'll allow you to stay that way, meaning you'll just continue in a cycle of evil and not even know that it's wrong, and eventually meet your maker and have to answer for the way you chose to live your life. The third thing we learn, God is powerful. We see how powerful he is throughout the story. In Exodus chapters 7 through 10, we see the 10 plagues. And it's not just power that he's displaying. He's actually demonstrating himself to be superior to the gods of Egypt. We don't have time to go through each one, but each of the plagues is an answer to a god that the Egyptians believed in. So, for example, turning the, water, uh, turning the Nile into blood. The Egyptians believed in a Nile god that would cause the river to, to overflow and water their crops. They believed in a goddess of fertility. They believed in a god of the earth. And so each one of the plagues that God sends demonstrates that god's not real. I have all the power. I have the supreme authority. You will know me by my glorious display. Again, I think there's a subtle truth in there for us. By God destroying what the, what the Egyptians hoped in, He's drawing their attention back to him. How often does God do that in our own lives? 
is actually one of his great mercies, right? It doesn't turn out that way for Egypt. They, you just read they end up dying in the flood waters, even though God destroyed their, God, their gods. But oftentimes what God will do is he'll destroy whatever it is that you place your hope in in order to wake you up and turn your attention back to him. Uh, growing up, um, one of my favorite rap groups was the group The Clips. Most people haven't heard of The Clips, but they were really, really good back in the day. Uh, songs like Grindin' and uh, uh, When the Last Time, and they even had a song where they make bird noises, and it was very, very entertaining. Um, but one of them, the reason I bring that up, not to tell you my, my fascination with uh, 90s and 2000s hip-hop, is uh, it's, a, it's a duo. It's, a, it's two brothers who formed that group, and one of them has since become an outspoken Christian. The irony of it, his rap name was Malice, and he changed his name to No Malice, because in the New Testament, you read over and over and over again that in the spirit of God, there's no maliciousness. So he's a rapper, he's creative, he changes his name to No Malice. Here's how that story played out. There's a point in his life where he had all the money, all the fame, all the things that you believe rappers to have. And he's looking at all of it and doesn't find any of it satisfying. And as it's not satisfying, trouble enters into his life. God breaking down these idols of his heart. Arguments with the record label, friends getting arrested and going to prison, record sales starting to plummet, where now he's not rapping because he enjoys it, now he's doing it to try and continue to pay the bills. And the way he describes it, there's a documentary you can watch on Amazon if you're that interested in it, but there's a documentary called uh, No More Malice where he talks about it, and he says that God entered into his life at just the right moment, removed all of these idols, and then stepped in and now his attention is fully on Jesus Christ, fully devoted to him. Oftentimes, that's exactly what God does in our own lives. See, maybe it's an idolatrous relationship. You're in a relationship with someone. You believe that they're your all. They're going to fulfill you and complete you and do everything that you need. And God looks at that and says, that is detrimental to your soul. I'm going to remove that from you so you can focus on me. Painful process, but a necessary process. Maybe it's a job, maybe it's a dream, maybe it's a, a hope, a desire, whatever it is. God is not above breaking those things down to get your attention back on him. He throws Egypt into chaos so that they all would know, I am the Lord and I am worthy of being worshipped. Don't put it past God to tear down your idols so that you would turn your focus on him. The last thing we learn about God here in this Exodus story is that he's gracious you see this increasingly large mass of people who are here in Egypt. And the funny thing about it, I think we miss this when we read the story, they don't know God. Now think about how it, how it plays out. God calls Moses, and he says, I want you to go to these people and tell them that they're going to be set free by me so that they may worship me. You're going to tell Pharaoh to let them go so that they may worship me. And Moses has to tell the people who this God is. He's got to explain it to them. You know why he has to explain it? They don't know him. God is rescuing people who are not worshiping him. They're not thinking about him. They don't know him. Seems like they don't care. As a matter of fact, when Moses first goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, remember how Pharaoh responds? He increases the work, makes them do double. And the people respond, Moses, get out of here. You and your God, you can leave because you're making us have to work harder. We don't like this. And so here's God rescuing the people who did absolutely nothing to deserve it. Sometimes our picture of the Israelites, and this is the way the movies depict it a lot, 
You've got these lowly Hebrews who are getting beaten and, and, and they're poor and all they want to do is worship their God. That's not how the story played out. They were content. They're slaves. They're getting beaten. And all they want is to not be beaten anymore. They could care less about the God who rescues them. See, it's not that these people measured up before God came and got them. That's not how it works. Sometimes we approach our own salvation that way. I've got to measure up. I've got to be better. I've got to do better. I've got to have a more consistently moral life, and then God will bless me. That isn't how it ever works at any place in the Bible. God in his grace saw fit to bring these people who cared nothing about him through the waters of the Red Sea and create a holy nation of people for his own possession. We worship a God who delivers his people out of slavery and into freedom so that we might know him. Lastly, the goal of redemption. See, this, God, this account of God going to these great lengths to, to save Israel, it's tempting and it's easy to just kind of file that away in history. It's kind of knowledge that we can answer on trivia night. Uh, oh, yeah, it was Moses that, that brought him out of Egypt. But this has a lesson that I think applies to us in a very, very important way. See, just like we studied last week how Abraham's faith plays a major role in the New Testament and in our own lives, the Exodus plays a major role in our lives as well. See, the Exodus represented God's redemption of a people who were enslaved by a wicked nation. God brings them out, turns them into a people for his own possession, tells them they're a kingdom of priests, gives them laws, and sends them out to go and witness to the world. In Luke chapter 9, we read about Jesus' transfiguration. It's a famous story where Jesus goes up on the mountain and starts glowing. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Luke chapter 9. I want to read it together. And as you're turning there, we'll start in verse 28. As you're turning there, what you're going to notice in this story is there's very intentional echoes back to the Exodus. See, a lot of what Jesus does in the New Testament is he's showing you God is still faithful to his promises. Remember what the Exodus is about. He told Abraham, I'm going to make your offspring multiply like the stars in the sky. It's hard to do that when they're slaves in Egypt, right? And so to fulfill that promise, God said, I'm going to set you free. And so Jesus comes on the scene in Luke chapter 9 to echo that promise for us. We read this beginning in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. These guys had long been dead. And now they show up, they're talking to Jesus on this mountain. Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his Departure. We're coming back to that. It spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Excuse me. Verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And what's going on here? Lots of allusions back to what happens in Exodus. Let me walk you through them and then get to the point. The first one, Jesus goes up on a mountain. 
What's that an allusion to? After Moses brings the people out of Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai. And Moses is the only one who's allowed to go up on the mountain and speak with God. Second thing we notice, Jesus' face is glowing. So the three disciples are standing there. They're looking at their rabbi. His face is glowing. Moses, when he came down from the mountain, Exodus chapter 34, his face was glowing from having met with God. The third thing we notice, Jesus' glory even shines through his clothes. Right? His clothes become radiant and white. And uh, it says that Peter, James, and John, they saw his glory. Well, this is reminiscent of God's glory descending on the mountain in Exodus chapter 19. There's fire, there's lightning, there's thunder, there's smoke. It's, uh, it's a glorious experience. The fourth thing, the people in Exodus, when they saw the glory in Moses' face, you know what they did? They trembled. They ran and hid. They said, get away from me. This is frightening. This is terrifying. God's going to kill us if we see any more of his glory. And you notice the disciples have the exact same response. A cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. That's the fifth thing that we notice. Why are they afraid when they enter the cloud? Because back in Exodus, when the cloud descended on the mountain, God said, anyone touches this mountain, they will die. And so they saw the cloud descending on the mountain as Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah, and the cloud descends, and they're thinking, that's it. The glory of the Lord is descending upon us, and we are about to die. Well, where else did we see that cloud? We just read it in Exodus chapter 14. God separates the waters. There's, wa there's a wall of water on the right. There's a wall of water on the left. And the Egyptians start to pursue them. Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, you know what? Bring them back. They're either going to work for me or I'm going to kill them. And it says that the cloud, the pillar of cloud, goes from in front of the Israelites to behind them. You can read it again in Exodus chapter 14. And separates the Israelites from the Egyptians because that is the presence of God. Well, to make it all connect, Luke tells us that when Moses and Elijah show up and they're talking to Jesus on this mountain, they're speaking to Jesus about his departure. Remember I said we were going to come back to that? His departure is a euphemism for his death. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem to die on the cross for the sins of the world. But the Greek word that's actually used there, I try not to say the Greek word because it makes you sound like you think you're smart. You guys know me. I'm not smart. But the Greek word that's being used there for departure, exodus. See, Moses and Elijah are standing on the mountain talking to Jesus about his exodus. Why does Luke choose to use that word? That's not the normal word for death or for departure. He's being intentional. And a few verses later, we read about Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem because we know that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's getting ready to be pinned up on a cross and die for the sins of the world. See, Jesus' death and resurrection is the accomplishment of a brand new exodus. That's what he's doing. See, he once brought the Israelites out of physical slavery through these waters of judgment and out on the other side as a brand new nation who would be known as God's people. Now he takes a people made up of all the cultures and the nations of the world, dies on the cross and resurrects for us, brings us out of our slavery to sin, and brings us out through the other side as his church. You guys are my people. See, sin had separated man from the presence of God. Sin enslaves us. See, oftentimes we think that we find true freedom when we escape from religion. That's the narrative that's out there. No Christianity, no Bible, no church. I'm free to do what I want. You are not free. 
If you're not captivated by Jesus Christ and pursuing him, you are a slave to your sinful desires. You know how I know that it's slavery? Just as the Israelites were slaves and they tried to escape and Pharaoh came running back and said, I'm going to capture them and I'm going to kill them. That's what your sin threatens to do to you. If you leave it behind, you stop thinking about that lustful thought, you stop pursuing that prideful endeavor, you stop tapping into your anger, you stop elevating these relationships to the status of idolatry, your sin's going to get you. It's going to come back and it's going to ask for you to pay up. It enslaves you. You have to serve your desires and when you don't, you feel empty, you feel lonely, and you keep going back and back and back and back. And Jesus came for his exodus to set us free from all of that. God was making a way to cancel sin entirely and form a church that will one day be like him and reign with him. See, this is who you are and this is who you were meant to be. Whether you consider yourself to be a Christian or not, you were designed by the God of heaven to be a person who praises and worships and follows him and him alone. See, church is not about coming to to earn a set of moral values to keep our family safe. It's not about gaining more positive people in your life so that it outweighs the negative people in your life. I hope that that's a byproduct of being a part of a church. We want you to have good morals. We want you to be surrounded by positive people. We want you to improve your quality of life. But if you do those things and you don't know Jesus, you've missed out. You're still a slave to sin and you still answer to a holy, powerful, and sovereign God for the way you chose to live your life. But what I read here in Exodus, these people who are whining and complaining the entire way. Moses, get out of here. We have to make more bricks. This is terrible, and God saved them anyway. And what's comforting to me, I hope it's comforting to you as well, is as you read on, nothing changes, right? It's not like they come out of those waters and then there's these perfect model citizens. Two chapters later, you get to Exodus chapter 16. They're whining about food again, and they're saying, take us back to, take us back to Egypt where we ate onions freely. Nobody eats onions, they want to eat onions back in Egypt as slaves. See, these are the kinds of people that God saves, the only kinds of people. You've been chosen, rescued, redeemed by a faithful, sovereign, powerful, and gracious God. That's it. And so he's done that for the purpose of you knowing him, coming to a knowledge of who he is in a way that sin prevents you from doing. And in knowing him, you are set free. Free. By pursuing Jesus Christ, that's where true freedom is found. I find where my hope is, where my happiness is, where my joy is, and I'm free to use the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the opportunities that God has graciously placed in front of me, and I'm free to pursue it with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and reap the benefits and watch the fruit grow. Or I can deny that, I can fight off Jesus Christ, and I I can ignore him and pursue other things that will continue to enslave me. Believe in and trust in the God who went to these great lengths to bring you out of slavery and into his marvelous life. See, I hope that this makes you thankful. I hope that hearing these words draws you into worship, causes you to pray a little harder today. Uh, maybe listen to some worship music tonight and sing it, with, uh, you know, sing it with some emphasis like you believe it. Maybe it draws you to the scriptures this week because you want to know this God more and more and more. And of course, my grand hope is that you would be captivated by this God who did this for you, and you would love him so deeply that you can't help but speak about him to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, because that's what God came to do, to do powerful and great things, freeing us from slavery so that we might have a relationship with him.
He wants a relationship with you. Give your heart over to Jesus Christ so that you can experience the joy you were created to have. Let's pray. God, we thank you that uh, in spite of our unworthiness, you would see it fit to come and rescue us where we needed rescuing. See, we're not worthy. We haven't done what was required in order to be set free. And uh, if we're honest, we're probably not even as grateful or as thankful as we should be for the freedom that we found in you. But yet you and your grace came and got the Israelites and brought them into freedom. And you've done the same thing for us. And so my prayer this morning is that if that hasn't come true for anyone in this room, that you would invade their heart, show them how wonderful you are, forgive them of their sin and draw them into your mission as well. We thank you for doing that for us. And we ask you to do that for more. In Jesus' name we pray.